for any of this time, any of the singing, any of the confessions to be profitable to our souls. And especially when we open up his holy word uh, and have a human man preach it. Um, we're especially needy. Um, so let's go to the Lord and ask for his help as we do that. Father in heaven, you're a gracious God. And you love to give good gifts to your, to your children. Like salvation. And like the ordinary means as we gather under your word and as we sing together and we pray and we petition things before you. Um, and even now as we open up your word, we need you, Father, to take your words and implant them in our hearts. That we would trust Christ more um, because of today. Pray that you would strengthen our faith, encourage us, um, help us to look over distractions today. Um, and be encouraged in the Lord Jesus. And help me as your preacher. Uh, in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. So I've talked to some of you prior to the service. And you asked me, hey, how'd your week go? Some of you knew I started school back online. And it's been pretty busy. It's not been a typical week. And then it's like, I've been doing really good. been really proud of myself. And then this week was not typical. And now I'm behind. And it was so stressful. And um, in one day, I feel like any sanctification that may have happened in my life is gone. I'm not a safe place for my wife. I'm blowing up. I'm just stressed. And it's like, good grief, you know. And then I stand up here to preach the word. And, and I'm reminded, uh, again, that our greatest need is Jesus, right? Our greatest need is Christ. And one of the things that causes us to think that, man, I've lost all sanctification. I've lost anything that I've gained or any. Any of my growth is because we're so infatuated with growth and with uh, constant improvement, with upward and onward. And, and that's a good thing to want. It's a good thing to desire. It's a good thing to even happen to our lives. But because, as we've confessed, we live in a fallen world full of sin and in bodies of death that still are prone to sin, that's a, that's a tough thing to accomplish. It's just onward and upward and always improving. And so one thing that has been said from the pulpit often is that true growth in the Christian life is not something that we get to measure. It doesn't have easy measurements. Um, how do you know that you, you've become more godly or that you're trusting Christ more? Because oftentimes when we feel those ways, it's just a lack of temptation, right? It's just a lack of, of this temptation to run to sin or to, to always go to something that's bad rather than choosing the better route, right? But the emphasis of the scriptures on running from sin is more about our identity, who we are, and loving our neighbor. It's more about one day at a time as we wait for Jesus' return. And growth in the Christian life ultimately is up to the Lord and through believing and understanding who Jesus is. Think about our prayers during hard times. God, help me. God, please sustain my faith. God, please help me because I only feel doubt this week. I'm like struggling to believe that these things are real. Help me. Sustain me. Help me trust Christ. As we believe, brothers and sisters, the Bible is about God's plan of redemption accomplished by Jesus. Then the way to understand it, the way to apply it to our lives, and ultimately the way to grow is by believing and understanding who Jesus is. And by God's grace, we gather today, this morning, under his word and sacraments to keep believing and to keep understanding and to keep growing in who Jesus is. And so today we parachute down into the Gospel of Luke chapter 7. And so you can turn there um, if you're not already there, the Gospel of Luke. And what I mean by parachute is we're not really walking through the front door and, and you know, starting a series. We're just jumping in chapter 7 and we're going to have two sermons in uh, chapter 7, and we're kind of digging a hole or cutting a hole in the roof and kind of dropping into one room. Um, and so in some ways, I'm going to try to help orient us, and in other ways, I'm going to try to uh, help us just see the point of chapter 7 and how Luke is, in his whole book, in the whole uh, gospel of Luke, he's talking about the promised one. So he's making lots of connections to the Old Testament, but more, more importantly, even in this chapter, he's starting to really hone in on who Jesus is. 
And so to answer my own question, how do we understand who Jesus is? Well, you guessed it, his word. And we show up to church uh, to, to sit under his word and to keep growing in who Jesus is. Um, and so if you're already there in Luke chapter 7, I'm going to read that for us. It's verses 1 through 17. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him to the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far off from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that follow him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples, had, his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As they drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. And then he came up and he touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. And fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Amen. This is God's word. We're thankful for it. And so the plan today is to survey the first event. We're going to think out loud a little bit about it. Then we're going to survey the second event, think out loud about it, and then we're going to close thinking about how those two events teach us who Jesus is. So to survey the first event, uh, this is just part one, which is Jesus heals a centurion's servant. And so verse one, he says, after he finished all these sayings. And so obviously that's important to this story and to what Jesus is about to do. So previously, um, Jesus has already performed many healings. He's taught in the synagogue. He's been challenged by the Pharisees. He's called his disciples. He's actually been kicked out of the place he was born because of what he was saying about himself. Um, and then he gets to chapter 6. And uh, he's challenged by the Pharisees because he's, he's wanting to heal a man's hand on the Sabbath. And you're not supposed to do anything on the Sabbath. And, of course, he tells them, you guys have just, you know, just reversed everything. I've made the Sabbath for man, and you've turned around and made the Sabbath about what you can do for God, right? The Sabbath is not for God. It's for man. And he's teaching them. Uh, he's going through, talking to the apostles. And then he gets to uh, what is essentially the Sermon on the Mount, but it's in Luke. And so there's theories that it could be a different teaching. T Jesus could have taught the same thing several times, and Luke may be recording a different account. They call it the Sermon on the Plain. But essentially, it's, it's very close to the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about the Beatitudes and the, and the woes. Um, and then he gets to this love your enemies piece. And we know about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus isn't teaching them uh, how, he, essentially, yeah, he is teaching them how to get to heaven. He's teaching them what the kingdom is like. The only thing is, just like the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, okay, of course you guys haven't killed anybody but you've had unjust hate in your heart. No, you haven't committed a literal adultery by cheating on your wife with a human person, but lust is all in your heart. And he's exposing, right? He's cutting the heart open and exposing that sin isn't just like Stephen said this morning, a behavior. It's actually who you are. So you're thinking that the law is actually making you righteous. And Jesus is explaining, no, the law actually shows you your need of righteousness. And he's talking about 
loving your enemies. And, and his point there is, is we don't, what he's saying is injury is not returned with injury. Evil is not returned with evil, but mercy is given. And we could take that and say, okay, that's the way into the kingdom. But in all honesty, what we have to ask ourselves is why is Jesus even on earth in giving a sermon, right? This sermon is about himself. You want to talk about loving your enemies? We are born naturally enemies of God. And instead of giving injury for injury, actually instead of giving us justice, he gives us mercy. And so Christ is on the scene to be our substitute, right? He is showing, love your enemies. This is what I'm doing. I'm loving my enemies. I'm, I'm on planet earth. I'm God and I'm keeping the law. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing that. And he talks about judging not, right? Judge not and you won't be judged. Condemn not, you won't be condemned. Uh, forgive and you will be forgiven. And he talks about the blind man and the, the log in the eye, the speck in your brother's eye, the tree and its fruit, uh, build, build your house on the rock. This is all coming into to where we're at. And his whole point here. It's not that if you just take the log out of your eye, you'll be able to judge your brother correctly. What he's saying is, I mean, think about a log in your eye. It's impossible to, a log is in your eye. It's an impossible scenario. The point is, realize that you need Jesus. You need a savior. You haven't loved your enemies. You haven't always turned the other cheek to an insult. You haven't always uh, only had just anger in your heart. You haven't always never had lust in your heart, right? He, what he's saying is, you need a savior. Judge not. You need something. Why are you telling him, right? And a tree and its fruit, what's good fruit? Well, it's a fruit that's not running around pointing out everybody's speck. It's good fruit is saying that I need a savior, and it's bearing up with one another and helping one another and protecting one another. Build your house on the rock. He says, who hears my words and do them? In one sense, it's the first use of the law that none of us have actually done the words that Jesus is speaking. Only he has done them to the point that it would earn him righteousness. But what is the one who builds his house on the rock? Well, he hears these words. And I'm in need of a savior. And we know on this side of redemptive history that we have a savior. And so what do we do now that we know that we're safe in Christ? Well, we love our enemies, right? We don't we don't put injury with injury. We don't return an insult for an insert, in, in, uh, insult. And God isn't here because he needs our sacrifice. What, he, what is his desire for us is that we trust Christ and that we show mercy. The person who builds his house on the rock is the person who trusts the Lord and who shows mercy to people. So after he finishes all these sayings, in the hearing of the people, he enters Capernaum. Verse 2, and what's about to happen is Jesus is about to exemplify everything that he just taught. So after he finished these sayings, he entered Capernaum. And I want you to know about Capernaum is, uh, it is a maritime city, which means that it's connected to the sea. So there's a lot of seafaring activity. There's a lot of military activity. There's just generally more cor corruption in this type of city because of its placement next to the sea and because of the traffic and the kind of traffic there is. And so he enters into Capernaum, and this centurion came. I want you to know that the centurion is a commander in the Roman army. The Roman army are usually not, uh, not that good to Jews, right? They're, they're quick to show the tyranny and just put the yoke of tyranny around the Jews. But instead, we see something different with this centurion. He had a servant who was at the point of death. And this highly valued to him is like this, this servant was precious to him. For some reason, it's not usually how a centurion is described with his servant, but this one was precious to him. And the centurion heard about Jesus. And so he sent to him the elders of the Jews. And it seems kind of weird that he would send the elders of the Jews, given what I just said, but he does. And what I mean by the elders of the Jews is that these people were normally just kind of the, if, if you were a Jewish Jew in this community, you would go to these guys and say, hey, is this lawful or unlawful? They were just kind of judging what was right, what was wrong, what you could do, what you couldn't. If you had a question, you'd go to the elders of the, Drew, the, the Jews. And so they go to Jesus. They're like, oh, man, we got you. Because this guy's probably like, hey, listen, 
you know, I, I love you guys. I love your nation. I, I built you a synagogue. Like, uh, go talk to Jesus because my servant needs healing, and I heard that he can do this. So they're like, oh, we got you. So they go, and what, what is their, what is their uh, basis, right? Hey, Jesus, you got to do this for him. Why? He is worthy because he loves our nation and, our, and built our synagogue. And, I mean, given the context, that's not nothing, right? It's easy to kind of get on him like, oh, they think he's worthy of going to Jesus. But, I mean, he is a centurion. This servant is precious to him. He's been kind to the Jewish nation. He's built them a synagogue. I mean, it doesn't say that he helped build. It, it really is that he built them uh, this synagogue, whether he provided the men or the money. Um, it, probably not the money because usually a centurion's not not the richest guy in the community. But regardless, he's very kind to the Jewish nation. And maybe he knows that, like, maybe he believes the, 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 the scriptures or the salvation belongs to Israel. And maybe he's kind for that reason. We don't know. We can imply many things. But we do know that he has been, he's a very kind human being as he is, this servant is precious to him and as he's been nice to the Jewish nation. And so Jesus says in verse 6, all right. So he went with them. And before they could get to the house, the centurion sends friends. And what does the friend say? Lord, I'm, I'm not worthy for you to enter my roof. Therefore, I did not come to you myself, but I, uh, you just need to say the word and my servant can be healed. This is what he says to him. And Jesus, and, and he explains what he means. Look, I'm under, I'm under authority too, meaning like I, being under authority meaning that someone who's more powerful than me gave me authority, and so I have authority of men. I can tell one to go, and he goes. I say this, they do it. You can too, is what he's essentially saying. Like, you can just say the word. And Jesus marvels. There's only, there's only two times that Jesus has ever marveled, and that was at belief and unbelief. He marveled at the unbelief of the Jews, and here he's marveling at the belief of this uncircumcised Gentile Roman officer. And he says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. In the, the story, the way Matthew describes it, Jesus does say, let it be done. And he sent the servant away. Um, but Jesus marvels. Let's just think out loud about what, you know, what just happened here. First off, regarding the centurion, there's a lot that we can kind of pick up on with the centurion's life, right? I mean, this is a very humble dude, it seems like, the humility of this, of this centurion. Like, he's showing kindness to his servants, and he's showing kindness to the Jewish nation. And we can apply motives, but I don't think it's helpful for us. And here's what a, uh, but it's obvious that this guy believes something about Jesus, He's believing what he's hearing. He knows that Jesus has authority where the type of authority where over nature that he doesn't have to be there. So he's like, I, I know you have some kind of, of power. And Jesus even honors his faith, if you will. And is like, I haven't found such faith like this in Israel. And a 19th century uh, Anglican bishop said this about the centurion. And I thought it was especially just devotional when you're thinking about even just looking at this story on the, on the surface before we get too deep. See the advantage of being connected with godly people. See the servant of the centurion cared for in his sickness, restored to health through his master's intercession. He was brought to Christ's notice through his faith, and who can tell what benefit the servant got out of that? This is a great testimony of what it is to be in the church, is what this guy was saying. And I thought it was a, a sweet little devotional thought about the centurion. But notice, more importantly, the centurion's confession here. I'm not worthy. See, at first, maybe he told the Jews, hey, go tell him what I've done. Like, I've, I show him the things. I, maybe he'll be kind and he'll do it. Well, I guess maybe he realized that Jesus was coming. And before he got to his house, he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. As Jesus got closer, he realizes, I'm not worthy of this. Now, two things about that. There was the law that God gave, and then the Jews took that and basically like, okay, we got to keep the law. So what we're going to do is we're going to make laws so that we don't even get close to breaking this law. And it, it just grew, right? So you have all this around the actual law, and there's just 
you know, a pile of stuff that you can and can't do. And so that's why you need elders of Jews to tell you what's lawful and unlawful because it's not clear. Because they, they're, they're, their main point of being righteous is by keeping the law. And it's like, yeah, you're going to be righteous by keeping the law. The problem is none of us can be. And so one of the laws inside of or on the outside of the actual law was that a Jew would be unclean if he walked into an uncircumcised Jew, Jew an uncircumcised Jew's house. So maybe this centurion, given his love for the Jewish nation and the fact that he built them a synagogue, is aware of the fact that this would be bad for Jesus, a Jew, to come to my house. And he was just respecting that. Or maybe there's more to that. Regardless, he says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. But what is what what does Jesus marvel at? That's what we should focus on. What what does Jesus marvel at? He marvels at his confession of the authority of Jesus's word. He says, Jesus, you don't have to come. You just say the word and he can be healed. You just say the word. And Jesus is just kind of astounded. And what does he say? Not even in Israel have I found such faith. Now, what Jesus is not saying is that no one in Israel has faith. That's not what he said. He said, not even in Israel. The, the astounding part of that is that the people of God who have the benefit of being God's people, of, I mean, I could take the time to go through the amazing things that God did for Israel, but you know them, and that's not the point of, the, of, of us today. But these are the people of God, and not even in those people who have the benefit of being God's people with his word and his scriptures and his oracles don't even have this kind of faith. I haven't found this kind of faith in my people. That's what Jesus is marveling at. That this guy is like honoring the authority that Jesus has. Now, this is, this is pre-Jesus even really revealing what he's coming to do to the disciples. He hasn't, I mean, Redemption hasn't necessarily happened, happened, but it's happening, right? So there's a lot. Like this guy's imperfectly, but really is like believing who Jesus is, right? He's believing that I don't know this. This guy's is a great prophet. Not sure that this centurion thinks he's the Messiah, but he does believe who Jesus is. I don't know what he is, but this guy has authority, and this guy has power, and this guy is from God. And so you just say the word. You don't need to come into my house. You just say the word. Jesus marvels at his faith. So what does faith look like, right? What's our takeaway as far as um, just the surface level of looking over this? What does Jesus marvel at his faith? And what does faith look like? His confession of Jesus' authority, the authority of his word. And what did, how did faith work its way out in this guy's life? Well, there's only two things we can see for a fact, and that's the humility. That this guy kind of recognized the, the power of God. Hey, I'm not worthy. Whether he was just being generous and, and, generous and respecting uh, the Jewish laws or whether he was contrite and like, I'm, I don't keep your law and you are a holy man. I am not worthy. I'm not sure which one it was. Doesn't say. But there was a recognition. There was some humility that happened. So what did faith do to this man? It humbled this man. And look how it changed his relationships. Look at the way he cared for his servant and the way he cared for um, even the Jewish, the, golly, the Jewish nation. Um, so there's that. Before we dive too deep into like, what is this really telling us about who Jesus is? That's what we'll get to. So. Moving on to part two, which is uh, Jesus raises a widow's son from the dead. So it says soon after he went to a town called Nain. Uh, it's a small town. It's really not that significant. Um, I kind of threw that in about Capernaum because I thought it was just a cool thing to know about that city. And that that's where most of Jesus's miracles and most of his teachings were done. And that kind of corrupted like city. But Nain is a smaller place. And his disciples had a great crowd, and they went with him. So now, you know, Jesus is doing all this stuff. There's a crowd following him. He enters to this place, and he gets to the gate. Now, just, I mean, in this time, in this time period of living life, you would put a gate around your city, right? Um, so the gate was really important. A lot of good things happened there. You'd make decisions. Um, you go in and out of the gate. You, you, you lock the people in. You lock people out. There's a lot of uh, significance even in Old Testament about going to the gate. 
And you're also, when you die, you're thrown outside of the city, right? Um, so they're at the gate. And, sorry, we draw near to the gate of the town. And behold, a man who had died was being carried out. He was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd. So, I mean, the, the only son of a widow is dead. That's the basic basic uh, details of the story, and not a single one of them is good. The previous story, at least we had a little bit of excitement, um, or at least some kindness here. I mean, in this story, there's not a, there's not a, everything is tragic. Every detail about this is tragic. She's a widow, and her only son is dead. And then we find uh, that a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Don't understand that to be that this lady was important. Two things here. The G, a part of these these laws that were around uh, the law was it was very uh, it was a very virtuous thing to just attend funerals. You got a lot of capital from just attending funerals, and then also you would pay people to come cry at your funeral. Uh, I mean, so th- there's there's lots of reasons why there's a big crowd, and none of it is that culturally, none of it is that this lady is cared about. And so that's why it's such a shock that Jesus comes in, he sees this, and he knows this. He knows this about this lady, and, and in, this is how Luke describes it in verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. This is the first time that Luke describes Jesus as the Lord, and then the fact that he connects it to compassion is very serious, because in Isaiah, um, in Isaiah 54, Verses 7 through 10. This is how he describes the Lord. For the mountains, I'm just going to read verse 10. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. I mean, this is, is, uh, and there's several times in Isaiah that the same thing is connected, that the Lord and his compassion, the Lord and his compassion. And so here we have Luke for the first time narrating Jesus as the Lord, connecting it to compassion. And let's see what Jesus does. This Lord who is compassionate tells this this widow woman whose son is dead, do not weep. Can you imagine um, if every time something tragic happened to your life, if someone says, man, don't cry, don't cry. I mean, things are bad. It's like if, if if your best friend dies, it's okay to cry, right? Because it's, we, we, you lost a friend, you lost a brother, you lost a sister. I mean, things that are really bad in life happen, and you cry, and it's okay. It's not okay that bad things happen. It's a result of sin. But because of that, we have emotions, and it's sad because things that are bad happen, and we cry. And so it's kind of inconsiderate to tell somebody who's struggling, do not weep. Don't cry about it. Everything's going to be okay. Normally in those situations, we, we just hug them. We let them cry. We let them get it out. But Jesus says, don't weep. And he's also the only one that can come up on the scene and say, don't weep. Because what does he do next? He touched the coffin. Everyone stopped. And he says, young men, I say to you, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. So the reason Jesus can come on the scene and tell somebody not to cry is because he is going to turn their crying into laughter, as he says in um, when he talks about the Beatitudes, he says, those of you who weep now, or blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And so he comes up to this lady and he says, don't weep. And he raises her son back to life. And fear sees them all. I mean, Jesus just came up and raised someone from the dead. So they're all, fear sees them. And they all glorify God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And of course, people heard about this and the crowd just grew and grew and grew. So, in just thinking about, uh, just briefly, just kind of thinking out loud about what we just read. Sorry. As I said before, not a single detail in this story is good. It's all tragic. What, what's kind of the takeaway of that? In the world is sinful. The world is sinful. It's just, it's full of all kinds of brokenness. It's full of all kinds of, of lamentation. Our lives are marked with pain and some more than others. But the struggle is just real and it, you can't avoid it on earth. 
And in verse 13, notice how Luke records this detail, like I said, about the Lord and his compassion. And then the crowd says, a great prophet has arisen among us. Of course, Jesus says, don't weep. And I think one takeaway, just for surface level here, before we really dig deep into who Jesus is and what this tells us, is let us never stop praying for our unconverted children or family or friends that they would meet the Savior who would at once tell them to arise and to believe in him. Just like Jesus said, and just like we read in Ezekiel 36, where the, the dry bones just took flesh. This is what happens in salvation. The Lord Jesus, we hear his call and we believe in him. Why do we believe in him? Because he tells us to, and we believe in him. We pray that for people. And so high level, what do we see out of these two events? Well, we see that Jesus is a savior and he raises the dead. It's that simple. Let's keep it simple. Jesus is a savior and he raises the dead. He's a savior. People call on him. Lord, just say the word. You don't have to be here. Just say the word. A lady who's weeping, her life is destroyed. She's a widow. She has no one. No one cares for her and her only son is dead. And Jesus says, don't weep. And he brings him back to life. So as Luke is recording about the promised one, and here he's really starting to reveal about who Jesus is. What do those two things, that Jesus is a savior and that he raises the dead, what do these two events really tell us about who Jesus is? Well, number one, he is a great prophet. Jesus is a great prophet. You see in the Old Testament, the prophets had words of authority because they spoke on behalf of God. God would say, say this, and they would say it. But notice how when when Jesus comes on the scene, even in these two examples, he doesn't ask God for what to say. Like, God, what should I say? And God doesn't tell him what to say. Why? Because the authority of Jesus' words here show us that he is God. He doesn't ask for God's permission, and God isn't telling him what to say. He is God. And so that authority, the authority of his word, it really shows um, this really... I think deep but complex and yet kind of simple thought. We believe that God created the world ex nihilo, out of nothing. And there's a word which I don't remember because it's complicated to say. It's to be. That God just said, let there be light. Let there be this. Things were just created. He didn't make something out of something. It was out of nothing. God spoke it into existence with his words. And what we, what we read in the New Testament as that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God, and it's blank in here, but the Word was made through Him. And then we hear that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that He came to His own, and His own did not know Him. So when we think about the Word, the, the, the authoritative Word of Jesus, it, I'm essentially connecting it to thinking about creation thinking about Jesus being there as the word. And now the word has become flesh. In Psalm 107, it says, God sent out his word and healed his people, people of Judah and saved them from their destruction. Ephesians 1.7 even says, in him we have, um, excuse me. Yeah, so we're, we're thinking about his word and that he doesn't need to ask God what to say because his word is authoritative because he is God. And that he has become flesh and he's dwelt among us for what? What has he become flesh, the word of God, become flesh, dwelt among us to do? Number two, who is he? He is the substitute for sinners. So he's the great prophet and then he's the substitute for sinners. Always ask yourself when you're reading the gospels, why is Jesus even on earth? Why is he teaching? Why is he even doing these miracles? All the prophets spoke greater than they know. Think about this. In Isaiah, Jesus is the Messiah, the Holy One, Israel, the Prince of Peace, Salvation, Righteousness. He's the Comfort. He's the Judge. In Jeremiah, He's the Righteous Branch. He's the Lord, our Righteous, our Righteousness. In Lamentations, He's the Man of Sorrows. He's the Weeping Prophet. 
in Ezekiel, he's the four-faced man. He's the son of man sent to rebellious Israel. In Daniel, he's the fourth man in the fiery furnace. He's smitten. He's the smitten stone that fills the earth. He's the king of kings. In Hosea, he's the patient bridegroom. He's the healer of the backslider. In Joel, he's the baptizer of the, with the Holy Spirit. He's the deliverer. In Amos, he's the burden barrier. He's the heavenly bridegroom. In Obadiah, he's the judge, and he's the executor of divine retribution. In Jonah, he's the foreign missionary, but he's the one greater than Jonah. In Micah, he's the messenger with beautiful feet, the rejected king. In Nahum, he's the avenger. He's the stronghold in the day of trouble. He's the prophet of comfort. In Habakkuk, he's the judge of Babylon, but he's the rewarder of those who seek him. In Zephaniah, he's Lord, mighty to save, executor of judgment. In Haggai, he's the priest and king. He's the builder of the house of the Lord. In Zechariah, he's the righteous branch. He's Yahweh's servant. And in Malachi, he's the son of righteousness. He's the messenger of a new covenant. And so what I mean, number one, was that Jesus is the great prophet and that in, in the authoritation of his word, in the authority of his word, that he is God, and that what he says happens. He said, arise, the boy arise. When he says, it is finished, we can trust that it is finished, because he speaks that as God, it is finished. And here he is our substitute. And what I'm proving is that the law and the prophets pointed to him. Later on in Luke, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus even, he asks them what they're talking about. And then what does Jesus take them and say? He takes the law and the prophets and he explains how they spoke of him. These are the prophets speaking of the great prophet who has come to speak a final word. And like the authority that he has, it, is, it, is, it can be trusted, right? He said it, the guy was healed. He said, arise, the guy arose. And as our substitute, the law and the prophets point to him. We are righteous because he is our righteousness. So why did Jesus show up on the scene to preach these things, to do these miracles? He's come to complete redemption. He's the one that all of the scripture talks about. He came to be righteous for you and I who are unrighteous. As this man says, I'm unworthy. He came to be worthy for the worthless. We were never worthy of God's kindness. We were never worthy of God being kind like here and healing that servant or bringing death to life. We are naturally enemies to God, spiritually dead, and not worthy of God's kindness. But as Jesus came, he was righteous for us. Not only did he live for us, right, but he took our punishment. He died for us. We're forgiven of every sin because he is the perfect sacrifice once for all. We don't look to ourselves for righteousness or assurance or for our forgiveness. We look outside of ourselves to our substitute, the great prophet who spoke a final word and said it is finished. We look to God the Son, the great prophet, our substitute. And number three, who is Jesus? He is freedom for captives. He's freedom for captives. So he's the great prophet. He's our substitute. He's freedom for captives. And what do I mean by this? Well, he's free, freed us sinners from the power of sin and the condemnation of the law. Do you know the verse Galatians 2 where it says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. For through the law, I died to the law. Because we're sinners, the law can only do one thing. It can do two things. It can make you righteous or it condemns you. And if you're not righteous, the law is nothing for you but death. And it must be done. The law will have death. And in Christ Jesus, you and I who believe in Jesus and have faith in, in Christ, we have died to the law. Death that, was, that we deserve has been taken. It isn't like Jesus just forgave us, right? It isn't like the law just lost power because of Jesus. What was he doing? You deserve death. Jesus died for you. And now you are no longer 
under the condemnation of the law. Death has happened and the, the law no longer has power to condemn you. So he's freedom for captives. He's freed us from the power of sin, the condemnation of law, and he's freed us unto righteousness. He is freedom unto righteousness. And here's the thing. Prior to faith in Christ, we were captives. We were slaves to our sin. The only thing that we could be sure of is hell and is death and hell. But now Christ has set us free from that. And we have hope. And we're no longer slaves to just being selfish. We don't have to always consider us over everybody else. It's not, not just me and my world. Actually, Jesus has freed us from that so that we can actually pursue the things that he taught. We can be like him, trusting him and show mercy like him. What is he doing? He's showing us the mercy of God. That's what Jesus' life did, the mercy of God. And so what does he say when we're to be like God? Show mercy. You want a sure way to ruin your relationships or your marriage or your friendships? Be an unsafe place where you don't ever forgive each other. Be Be a place where you're always quick to condemn each other. Be a place where you never seek to understand each other, where you never show mercy. Jesus has freed us where we can lay those selfish desires aside and we can consider the other person more important than ourselves. We can turn the other cheek when someone offends us. We don't have to give injury to injury and insult to insult. We can seek to understand even when the other person isn't seeking to understand us. We can show mercy, especially when that person doesn't deserve it because you and I didn't deserve the Son of God coming to live in our place and die in our place and give us a hope that we didn't deserve, we didn't work for, we didn't earn, we don't keep it, we don't change it, we don't return it, can't be returned. We never deserved any of that. And we've been freed from the condemnation of the law as sinners, but we've also been freed from our selfishness unto righteousness. We can pursue mercy with each other. Of course, you're going to fail at it because we're still in these bodies of death. That's the reason Paul pins Romans 6, 7, and 8. When someone starts talking about your freedom to be righteous, there's no need for us to get squirmy. The reason we get squirmy is because there's probably areas in where we can show more mercy. We can show, and that's true. But we're not showing that mercy. We're not showing forgiveness. We're not seeking to forgive one another to earn anything from the Lord. We're doing that because we are His. Because our status and our identity is complete and it's never changing. We're in Christ. So in in the way that Christ is freedom for captives, he's freedom from the power of sin and condemnation, and he's freedom unto righteousness. He's also freedom from the power of the grave. Freedom from the power of the grave. Consider the boy that Jesus raised in our second story. See, he was brought back to life but he was going to die again, right? He was brought back to life, and Jesus did solve the lady's problems. Her son wasn't dead any longer. But the thing is, is he was going to die again. And just like the the people that Elijah and Elisha raised from the dead, yes, they came back to life, but what? To die again. So why in the world is there a reason for Jesus to tell her not to weep? He only temporarily solved her problem because it was much greater than that miracle. That miracle pointed to something greater. The problem is that death is upon us, right? The problem is no one can really change death. Jesus comes on and brings the guy back to life to die again, but he's pointing to something greater. Jesus is on his way to do something greater. He was literally on his way to do something greater. And what is that? To defeat our final enemy, which is death. It, too, has been defeated by Jesus when he died and rose again and walked out of the grave. He didn't rise like the boy did in our story or even like the guy being healed from death, the servant that Jesus healed with the centurion. Both of those dudes were going to die again. But when Jesus rose again, he didn't rise to die again. He rose never to die again and ascended. And he sits right now at the right hand of God the Father. He will never, ever, ever die again. And we are in him. 
So yes, death is kind of still our final enemy. We're either going to die or Jesus is going to come back. But our hope is Jesus himself and that he has never died. He will not ever die again and we will be with him forever. In a real kingdom where sin isn't present and his enemies, death, sin, will finally be defeated and it will be no more. Which leads us to the fourth and final point of what this tells us about who Jesus is, that he is hope to those who weep. He is hope to those who weep. Between now, as we're trusting Christ, and between then, when all of God's people's enemies, all of Christ's enemies are made his footstool, and in, we're in glory forever, between now and then, we live in a fallen world, in fallen bodies, full of trouble and pain and sin and death. But we don't grieve as those without hope. We don't know what the future brings in this life, but we know the end of the story. And until then, Christ is here with us. Jesus shows up on the scene, and you can, you know, this is like maybe a cute way to say it. He wipes her tears away. But later on in life, she probably cried again. When Jesus comes back, he's not wiping tears away. He's destroying pain. He's destroying tears. You won't cry anymore because there's going to be no pain. There's going to be no sin. There's going to be no struggle. And that's our hope as we live in these grievances, as we struggle together, as we struggle to forgive one another and to bear up with one another. Our hope is that weeping will be no more. Pain will be no more. Sin will be no more. And he is here with us to commune with us. His you, as we you know, get ready to go to the table here, and I close this sermon. You know, this table is a great example of Christ's presence. Not physically. His human presence is in heaven. But his divinity is here with us. And it's here with us at this table. In a spiritual way, he's here with us. Not everybody's married. Not everybody's old enough to even had a girlfriend or date or be married or whatever. But it's a good example because friendship is kind of this way too. So if you're not married, you can think of it as friendship. There's a story about holding your wife's hand. Actually, the story was called Hold Your Wife's Hand. And he's like, the, the guy had lost his wife. And he was talking about what it was like to hold your wife's hand. He's like, I should have done it more because I remember what it felt like holding her hand. And it was kind of this thing where she knew she felt safe to hold my hand, that I could lead her. She could follow me. She felt safe. She knew that I loved her. Even if we were fighting, what she wanted me to do was to come and to, to hold her hand, to come and to make her know that, like, yeah, we had a disagreement, but it's not changing anything about my love for you. So there's, there's all this going on, even just by holding someone's hand. Well, as believers in the Lord Jesus, we don't get to hold his hand. And he doesn't get to hug us when we're struggling to believe that he's enough. We don't get to a hug from the Lord Jesus. We don't get to go to Jesus and say, man, I need you to speak a word. We don't get to do that. But this table is where we get to physically and tangible reality. We hold the bread and we drink the juice and it reminds us. It's a way for Jesus to be with us, to remind us that he is enough to give you peace with God, no matter what you feel. It's a reminder that God is faithful. It's a physical reminder that he will never leave you, that you can follow him and it's, it's, um, he's a good leader. He's a good husband, if you will. So this is the promise that we have in the table. As we look today at uh, Luke chapter seven and we kind of just jumped in and it seemed a little scattered um, I want to finish with the, the first thing that I uh, the first thing that I said if I can find it here well maybe I'm losing a page here okay here it is if the Bible is about God's plan of redemption accomplished by Jesus, 
then the way to understand it, the way to apply it to our lives, the way to be filled with the fullness of God is by believing and understanding who Jesus is. That's what Luke did for us today. As we looked at these stories of Jesus' healings and we looked at this story of faith and Jesus bringing back someone from the dead, we understand that these stories aren't the point. The point was not that the servant was well. The point is not that the dead man was raised. There was something greater. And that is what Jesus was there to do ultimately with his life. And that is complete redemption. So that's who Jesus is. He is our redeemer and our friend. So let's pray together as we um, close and head to the table. Father in heaven, we're, um, we're thankful that we call on Jesus' name. We call upon you in Jesus' name, and you hear us. You will never forsake us. No matter the, the struggle or the pain, no matter what we've been through or what we've done, as we learn from the, the centurion servant, you're the savior of all people, not just the Jews. You're the savior of all people. And that as you showed up on earth, you didn't show up as another prophet to point us to something greater. You are the greater one. And you finished salvation. Lord Jesus, you said it is finished. And just like you, as, as you spoke to these in these two miracles and said, let it be done. And it was done. You've said it is finished. And we can trust that it is finished. Father, in the example of Lord Jesus, when you brought this boy back to life and you wiped these tears away from this, this widow, that was actually pointing to something greater that you would do. That you were going to finally destroy sin and pain and the struggle and we'll be with you forever. And until then, you've left us this supper to commune with you to be assured that you're with us, that you're going to hold us, that you are enough to give us peace with God. So, Father, do this during our time. In Jesus' name, amen.